Hi, everybody, and welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Black Empowered Podcast. I'm your co-host, Ashanti Brown, and we thank y'all for tuning in. Today, we're gonna I'm going to bring you a special episode, an amazing conversation with White Table Talk and Dr. Aisha Metzger as she gives us a deep dive into trauma exposure in childhood. Enjoy. Okay, I see some people coming in now. Please share this live. This is a very very important conversation and discussion and I want to make sure as many people as possible come on in the room come on in the room please please while you're waiting as you all know I take a few moments to allow people to come in so please share this live please share the live as we prepare to have the conversation about trauma triggers and treatment we want to be able to uh, have a dialogue about how we can um, assess some of the things that we deal with and um, provide information to people to um, help us in this area. And I know we need it. I know I need it <laughs> in my family. I know that I need it in my personal life. And so I'm hoping that this will be an asset to you and your family as we discuss trauma, triggers, and treatment. Dr. Mel, thank you. I see you here. Um, Dr. Melanie Styles, thank you for joining us. I appreciate you. Um, and I'm going to bring um, my um, big, my guest on today. Um, I'm excited. I'm excited. So I have with us uh, Dr. Aisha. She is uh, a doctor um, and uh, of psychology. She has uh, degrees, and um, I'm just super excited to to share or have her share her information and knowledge. And so briefly, she is a licensed clinical psychologist, founder and director of the Empower Lab, owner of Cultural Concepts, LLC, a certified therapist in trauma-focused cognitive behavior therapy and, to, and a mental health expert. So let's give it up for Dr. Aisha tonight. Sound effects play. Um, <laughs> right. And I'm super excited to have you ladies, wonderful ladies on tonight. We are here to have a very, very important conversation, I think, uh, within our community, within our culture, uh, because we don't talk about this type of stuff. And it's becoming a little more common than what we used to, uh, because we never really had these kind of conversations. So I want to continue the conversation. We've had it before, but I have uh, Dr. Melanie Stouts, who, who assisted me in starting the conversation um, on Facebook Live to offer uh, insight and um, encouragement to people who are fearful of talking about um, how to deal with trauma, how to deal with some of the issues that we have. And I have my sister Camille on, um, who's also in the area and in this field. So we are, we are aware that we have an issue and we are trying our best as um, advocates to help with solutions and um, treatment and you know options for us to be well. So I'm glad to have you on Dr. Aisha. I'm glad to have Jacqueline on as well. You ladies are gonna help me because I, I will be honest in saying I'm, I'm new in this area, but I'm also very aware that this is needed. Um, I was personally, I will share very quickly, um, this topic is trauma triggers and treatment. And so we dealt very briefly with my sister Tamora, Dr. Tamora Callens, um, a few months ago, we dealt with trauma uh, very briefly um, leading up to how that affects marriages, how that affects relationships, um, how that can set someone back if they don't deal with some of the issues or the trauma or tra traumatic experiences that they've had and how it affects relationships as a whole, unresolved. And so I said, listen, we also have this issue amongst other scenarios, right? Where there's a lot of children that are dealing with trauma that's um, leading them to make decisions um, that are very abrupt and harmful to other people because what they're dealing with has not been looked at or resolved or managed or treated. And so we have all of these shootings happening. We have, you know, bombings happening. We have so many different things that really has a lot to do with our mental well-being and not having the either the the information or the the communication right to deal with some of these issues so I'm so happy to have you on Dr. Aisha and um, my sister Jacqueline who's going to 
just kind of steer <laughs> the conversation and I'm just going to chime in where I can fit in. But this is white table talk and we deal with real life issues and trying to provide some spiritual resolve to real life issues. I believe in God and therapy. <laughs> I believe in God and therapy. And I think it's very important that we come to the place so we get to the place where we try to find solutions to help us become better people and stop putting stuff under the rug like they don't exist. So that's what we want to do tonight. We want to address some of the issues. Um, I wrote a book uh, a few years ago called Get Your Life. And that book was about me revisiting me as a child and addressing some of the trauma that I had to deal with as a child. And in that book, I was basically apologizing to myself for not having the courage to deal with some of the things or to speak on some of the things that were happening in my life. So I dealt with a lot of molestation, a lot of incestual situations in my, in my youth. And um, that shaped me um, as an adult. And as an adult, I had to get to the place where I, I dealt with some of these things. I had to seek therapy. I had to seek counseling because I understood that it was affecting my life choices. It was affecting me. I was growing in some areas, but not able to move forward in other areas because the trauma was so real. And I experienced a triggering situation that caused me to down spiral. And so I want to talk about that. Um, and where we are also including some of my personal experiences and how important therapy has been for me developing a better understanding of who I am. So I'm hoping that we can do that tonight. And so Dr. Aisha, in dealing with that and talking about Get Your Life and me as a child, what would you say happened in a child's mind or brain that keeps them frozen in a place that they desperately want to escape? What would you say caused cause them to be in that state of mind? as they progress into kind of emerging adulthood and into adulthood. So I'll say that there are a couple of things that happen. Um, so one thing that happens is that as a child, your worldview that's starting to form can change. Mm -hmm. So when I say worldview, that means just the way that you think about human interactions, the way you think about safety, the way you think about trust, when you experience stressors that disrupt kind of your worldview, you might start thinking that as opposed to, you know, a typical child with typical experiences has rose colored glasses, the world is a safe space, good things happen to good people, um, you know, to go to adults for care, for safety, for um, attention and nurturing. Um, but when things happen, particularly in our family environments that are stressful, they do disrupt the way that we're able to think about the world. So that's one thing that changes. Also, uh, what we know about child development is that um, early on, we're going through kind of socialization. We're going through a lot of experiences that allow us to practice appropriate emotion regulation. So if you have a caregiver who's not modeling appropriate um, being able to calm down when they're upset, appropriate modeling, even appropriate discipline. Um, certainly you talked about in sexual kind of experiences, if they're not modeling appropriate um, affection, grooming, talking to you about your emotions, talking to you about healthy sexual partners, how do you know a good touch versus a bad touch, yeah. right? All of these um, kind of socialization experiences that happen in our early childhood are often disrupted with kind of these interpersonal trauma mm -hmm. um, experiences that do prevent some of the um, kind of positive development from happening. So not only is a traumatic experience kind of disrupting the way that you're thinking about the world, but you're also not getting that information, that modeling, even role-playing that caregivers go um, undergo with their kiddos is oftentimes in abusive, neglectful, but otherwise stressful and traumatizing environments. Those sorts of experiences aren't happening. So as kiddos develop into their teenage years, into emerging adulthood, now they're entering into relationships and either they're not choosing healthy partners or they're choosing a healthy partner, but they don't know how to interact with them in a healthy way. Mm. Um, so those relationships oftentimes are the first times that they're practicing, okay, how do I talk to someone when I'm upset? 
right, without losing my hands or without blowing up? How do I regulate my emotions and communicate them in a way that's healthy? Um, so oftentimes what you see in adulthood is those people who haven't had those experiences or the ones who've had those negative experiences are at a deficit in the way that they're able to choose healthy partners or even relate to those partners. Um, and that's where we start to see kind of the imbalances, the unhealthy relationships or the unhealthy functioning in otherwise healthy relationships. So it, it, it happens in both of those ways, kind of shifting as well as a lack of appropriate modeling and, and kind of psycho, so psychology education mm -hmm. around modeling and um, regulating your emotions and even healthy communication that's not there. Right. And, and so from my experience, um, when you say healthy communication, we didn't have much of that. Um, it, so I, I have a few chapters in my book. One of them is what happens in this house stays in this house. Right. So we were taught to be quiet about some things. We were taught to stay out of adult conversation. So there were certain dialogues that weren't provided or we weren't old enough to have certain conversations with adults. And so there was a certain level of silencing, even from our own family, even from the, our own caretakers that caused some of us or me in particular to feel like I didn't have a voice. So when you talk about a child now um, trying to know how do I communicate and also talking to the parents because children are not on here right now, right? So I want to help the parents. Um, I want to help the aunties and the grandmothers and the caretakers. I want to help us to be able to identify when something's not right when it comes to the people or the children that we are looking after, um, even in our church, in our communities, when we see something that, that how do we identify that something is not right, something is off? How do you identify trauma? How do you identify what it is? Um, is it a look? Is, is it a behavior? Is it a sound? Is it a low speaking voice? Is it a, um, abrupt voice? Is it a touch? Um, I know some people that if you tap them on their back, they respond to that because it's reminiscent of uh, someone that used to molest them. That's how they used to beckon for them. They would tap them on their back and let them know it's time. And so some adults grow up not liking that touch. So how do we identify that with a child? How, how do you assess that? Um, in, in very much the same way. So, so one thing that I'll say is that you talked about, uh, you said what, I'm gonna say it in a different way. What happens mm -hmm. in the family stays in the family, right? Mm -hmm. Don't air our dirty laundry. Uh, mm -hmm. So those are just family values that I think is really important to talk about with any kid, just so that you're able to assess kind of their comfort with talking to you in general. So that's if you are a clinician, that's if you are their caregiver, that's if you're just a friend of theirs, right? So. What sorts of values do you have in your family? What sorts of things do you say? Um, I wanna have this conversation with you based on some concerns that I'm having, but I'm also you know, interested in how receptive you are to that conversation. So just starting off with that is really important. Um, but in terms of having the conversation, um, I like that you just talked about, so that exaggerated startle response that you, you described, we call that hypervigilance. So that's just to say, uh, if someone is physically being abused and it's something that's unpredictable, then certainly if someone's you know reaching towards them, they might have that exaggerated startle response. So that's something that you can visibly look for, mm -hmm. um, but also it is a matter of having a conversation, observing the kiddo, looking for, um, I'm going to call them unusual behaviors, but they can, they can seem typical, but if they're unusual for that child. So for instance, if they usually go outside and play and now all of a sudden they don't want to go outside and play anymore, that's unusual okay. for that child. Okay. So that's detachment, reduced interest. They're not getting pleasure from things that they typically do. If there are people that they start to avoid, if there are things, so say there's a kiddo who all of a sudden doesn't want to go to the bathroom or doesn't want to take a bath anymore, right? You can start, that's an unusual behavior. So what is happening that you're avoiding, typically it's associated with a stressful experience. If you have a kiddo who gets tummy aches before they go to a certain relative's house or headaches 
or they start complaining all of a sudden. Those are somatic responses that you can look out for. I said somatic. Those are physical kind of complaints that kiddos will have um, that will directly tie back into some sort of stressor that they're likely having. Um, you can also look for, right, just sadness, um, anger, kids who um, look disobedient or non-compliant oftentimes are responding to authority in a negative way because authority figures have abused their power in other situations, mm. right? So what I say in kind of therapeutic practice is that uh, there's no bad kid, right? Uh, very few bad kids, like 2% are sociopaths, right? It's 2% are gonna be those ones who have ODD. The rest of them are, are dealing with some sort of stressful experience. 15% of those are gonna be traumatic experiences. So it's really important for us to be able to, um, yes, have those conversations to say, I'm concerned. Um, I wanna talk to you about anything that you're going through that's making you feel bad or anyone who's talking to you in a way that makes you feel bad or anyone who's touching you in a way that makes you feel bad. So that can be physically hurting you or touching you in a way that's confusing to you. Um, and when I say confusing, that can be kiddos who are now acting in a way that is not typical of them. So yeah. kiddos who are now exhibiting inappropriate sexual behaviors, where are you learning that from? Yeah. Um, is the question that that either allows you to ask or to observe to find the answer to. Um, so that's depending on, right, if this is your child, you should have those conversations about safe touches, who is appropriate to touch you, doctors, nurses, mommy, daddy, right? So having those conversations around secrets, who can keep a secret? And if you have a secret, maybe it's okay to tell mommy those secrets. And what mm -hmm. sorts of secrets do you keep, right? Yeah. Um, so just those sorts of conversations, I think, are um, ways to open the door to assess for or be aware of potential traumatic experiences or stressful experiences even that kiddos are, um, I'm saying experiences, but when we think about um, kind of the current age, they also might be just witnessing these things. So they could be witnessing them in school, online, on social media, um, and those can be potentially traumatizing as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I uh, my sis Jacqueline's going to uh, proceed with the next question, but I want everyone that's on Facebook, this is an extremely important conversation. In these last few minutes, I've learned so much um, with what you've shared already that I think is very important for all parents to tune into. So please share this. Those who are on right now, I want to give you a brief moment to share this live. This is a very important conversation. Um, and as I said, I'm going to, to add in some of those experiences um, that I had in the book because I think it's relevant to this particular conversation and me being able to identify as a child, as an adult, and some of the things I wish I knew you know, that um, I would be able to say to my mother, like you mentioned, like, you know, certain code words, who's, who's it okay to have secrets with, um, you know, being able to identify when a child uh, wants to stay in when they're usually someone that's pretty social. I mean, you've mentioned a lot of red flags that we call them today on social media. These are red flags when you see that a child shows up and says, I have a tummy ache when they're about to go to a house that, you know, they don't like to go to. Like these are definitely signs that I don't think um, that we often take, take advantage of preparing and seeing because we're so used to just getting them to where they need to go. I think it's also taking time out to assess, right? What is actually going on? What my child is actually saying without saying it. So these identifiers are amazing um, to be able to, even as teenagers, you know, teenagers start to become disruptive and their attitudes and behaviors change. And that's not like you, Katie. That's not like you, Donna. Like what is happening? What happened to you? It should cause some type of red alert. Like what's going on with my child and why don't they feel comfortable with speaking to me? So starting these conversations as toddlers, you know, you can always come to mommy is very important, right? Um, so that they know that you're a safe place. So I, I think this, what you've said so far is absolutely amazing. I, I wish I had you in 1983. I, <laughs> I do. Thank you. So go ahead, Jacqueline. No, I mean, I just, you know, I think that when it's, 
with children, we have to be so careful because everything we do, we are developing their mind, their mm -hmm. perspectives, mm -hmm. the way they see, think, feel, all those different things in the world. And I think a lot of times, because we're very, some of us, I'm not gonna say everyone, we could be dismissive of children, right? Oh, what, they, what they're thinking, what they're feeling, it doesn't matter until, you know, I, I, I always use myself for the example, until I'm 35 and I'm dealing with certain issues that took place 30 years ago, right? 20 years ago. And so Dr. Isha, Aisha. Aisha. See, I knew I should have went with the second one. I've been listening to it all the whole life. <laughs> no worries. <bro. laughs> um, what I like to, to talk about, especially with children, is trauma, right? How does trauma, how can it cause someone to become stuck in the past? That's one. And then Trauma is not, a lot of times people think of trauma as something that has happened in the past, right? Oh, I encountered that traumatic experience, but trauma is not something that just happens in the past. It's an experience that takes place in the mind, the body, the brain, and it often has imprints and consequences for how we act in the here and now. So would you be able to talk a little bit on how trauma affects the developing mind of a child and um, sort of the ramifications of trauma going unaddressed? Yeah, I like that you say that people can get stuck. Um, when we talk to kids, we, we don't call them a cognitive distortion, which is what you're describing, but we call them stuck points. And that's to say you experience something and it changes the way that not only you look at the world, but the way that you're able to process your experiences. And that's to say that you might, um, and some individuals, right, might start to respond to stressful situations in the same way that they did when they didn't have the appropriate coping mechanisms. So we do get stuck and we do get those similar repeated cognitive distortions. So that's just to say that you start to respond to these stressful experiences by blaming yourself, right? So if you initially have someone around you who blames you for everything, now you're internalizing that, now you make a mistake. And as opposed to being able to rebound from that mistake and try again, now you're in your head, oh my goodness, I'm so stupid. I can't do anything right. I'm such a failure. Now you're more likely to have a negative emotion of hopelessness, helplessness, depression, sadness, right? Anxiety. Now you're more likely to have that negative behavior of not trying anymore, giving up, checking out, avoiding school. So that one step point, that one cognitive distortion of self-blame now leads to that negative thought, that negative feeling, that negative behavior. So it's that cycle and that chain that we try to teach kids so that they can disrupt and get unstuck. Um, so that's kind of one example of 12 different types of cognitive distortions. So others are, you could start to catastrophize. So now one small thing happens and oh my goodness, this is the end of the world. Because when you were younger, it seemed and felt that way. But as you grow up, we should be able to, okay, I fail one test. I should be able to come back and try and not think, okay, I'm a failure at everything in life. I'm never going to college, right? So there are examples of ways that individuals learn to process and respond to stressors that does um, get them stuck in their pattern of functioning. So that can be, I talked about self-blame, but others might blame other people and not take responsibility, right? Mm -hmm. So this is all so-and-so's fault. This is all so-and-so's fault. And that can lead to a, a chain reaction of not being accountable of not, of I say a chain reaction, but a pattern of behaviors that now becomes problematic into adulthood. Um, so I think these traumatic experiences in childhood do leave us, and Dr. Stevens, I love that you use that word, they do leave us stuck, not only in that experience, but in the way that we're responding to that experience. Um, 
and a part of what we do for kiddos when we work with them is we disrupt that pattern of responding. But we also teach them about what I just described. So the cognitive behavioral triangle is to say your thoughts, the thing that you tell yourself does impact the way that you feel about yourself and the way that you feel about the world. And that also impacts what you do. So our job is to change the way that you're thinking about these experiences, the ways that you're thinking about your ability to even overcome them so that you can unstick yourself. Um, and oftentimes it's just giving people awareness of that, right? You guys are nodding. So that's to say, yeah, I know that I tend to be a black and white thinker. That's to say I'm all or nothing. Even I, Either I'm good or I'm bad. Either they're evil or they're angelic either he's safe or he's dangerous either right i pass or i fail that's a cognitive distortion we often need to be able to be flexible with grace face right no you're not all bad no you're not all good yeah you made a mistake right so identifying the ways that we fall into I'm saying cognitive distortion, that's because you guys are a little older. If I was talking to my kid, I would say, don't fall into that thinking trap, right? You're trapping yourself with the way that you're thinking about these things. Um, and I'm saying self-blame, I could say, don't be a negative Nancy, right? So that's, it's, there are different ways that you can talk to kiddos about the ways that they're processing things. Um, self-blame could also be, right? Don't talk to yourself how you would talk to your friend. Right, oftentimes we talk to ourselves more harshly because of the ways that people are used to talking to us. But even abused kids, traumatized kids, neglected kids, they're often good friends, they're the sweet ones. Don't talk to my friend like that. And that's if they're talking to themselves in a bad way, right? So to get people in the mind of uh, rejecting that trauma, processing it, resolving it, understanding, right? We do the wheels of responsibility to say, you know, this is a caregiver who, yes, they feed you and they clothe you, but also they hurt you in this way. So resolving those things and understanding, you know, maybe they didn't have the ability because they were working on feeding and clothing you to give you that emotion regulation skill. So how can we resolve that and empower you to learn how to regulate your own emotions. We could do deep breathing and meditation and you talked about spirituality, we can pray, right? We can get healing in adulthood for things that happen in childhood um, and working with kids. I, I work with kids because they're the most resilient, right? When it's fresh, you're able to just get in there and clean it up. Um, but in adulthood, it's very much the same thing, just looking back and being able to process, accept, and then grow from those experiences. That's absolutely amazing. I, I'm like, my mind is just like, I have so much to ask because this is this is my group. Like I'm I'm so child oriented. This is this is what I this I love children. I love the youth. And yeah. so I'm always focused on how they are and um, their stability and also acknowledging that for for a lot of the way I maneuver in life, it's it's responding to what I couldn't do for myself then. So my, my affection or my affinity towards youth is based upon what I could not save myself from. And so I identify with that and I identified with that through therapy. So now that we, we are in this place, like it, it's my responsibility to help the young people before they get to the place where um, they feel like they don't have a voice or they feel like they can't have anyone or can't talk to someone to know that they do have a voice. So um, I have someone on here, um, Shannon says, especially if you have a physically challenged child. Um, and I've thought about stuff like this as well. There was a few years back, um, Jackie, I don't know if you remember this. I believe it happened in Westchester. Uh, there was a physically challenged uh, dis disabled young lady and she was impregnated in a facility. And so I'm like, what? Uh, you, you, you think that you have your child in a safe place and, and things are happening that they don't have a voice to express. And um, I, I believe she had diseases and all type of stuff when they ran the test on her. And it was just like, she was not able to vocalize what was happening to her. And I'm even thinking of two-year-olds and three-year-olds who can't express um, you know, I, I have a family member who was being uh, abused by a relative when they were a baby. And so when you think about these things and the, the people that really don't have a voice, you know, quote unquote, as opposed to someone that's just feels like they're silenced, like, how do you, how do you help? What do you say to that? Like, I'm just like, yeah. Uh, and I love that 
you're talking, because there are a lot of different physical, developmental, intellectual disabilities that individuals can have or even delays. But I like that you're talking about it from the voice standpoint. So say there's an individual who physically cannot talk, right? Of course, kids can talk, but they're at a different intellectual functioning. You can still observe and communicate with that individual, right? If they can't talk, but you can, you can talk to them about safe touches and healthy touches and safe spaces, right? So this is just your no area. This is your no area, right? And no one should touch you there. If it feels bad, if it is someone who is not mommy, daddy, a nurse, or a doctor, they should not be touching you there. If they do, you need to make whatever noise you can make. And if it's not vocally, you need to write a letter. You need to throw a tantrum. You need to scream. You need to bang on the walls until someone hears the noise that you're making. And having that conversation over and over, and this is at bath time, if you're giving your kiddo a bath, right? You can have the conversations around healthy touches and self-touches, in a way, right? I'm saying healthy touches and safe touches, but it could just be no areas and yes areas. Yeah. Um, and mommy is the person who you talk to about this, or let me not say talk because we're talking about someone who's voiceless. Mommy is the person that you come to if someone yeah. touches you in these areas and show mommy, where did they touch you, right? You can show me, did they touch you here? Did they touch you here? Did mm-hmm. it hurt? You can ask those sorts of questions, but also you can observe, right? So kids are just naturally curious about themselves. But if you notice that a child is all of a sudden attending to their private parts in a way that they haven't previously been, it can be that someone else has been. And those are questions that now, if you can't ask them verbally, you sure can start observing, looking at the people who are around them, checking in on the situations that they are in, and really making sure that you're providing that safe environment. I mean, I think that that will allow for whether or not they're able to verbally tell you observations, attending to their behaviors, as well as their environments and the people around them is what can allow you to keep them safe as well. That's, that's amazing. That, I mean, I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm just like, well, there's so much um, that uh, we can definitely learn from and kind of, you know, assess even with the children. And I'm just sitting here and I'm thinking about um, all of these different scenarios that I didn't feel like I could speak on. You know what I mean? I didn't feel like, or you didn't know. And it's not until someone checks in on you, right? right? I I like that you said that because otherwise you're thinking, oh, everyone is getting a bath by this person and being touched in this way. But it's not unless someone asks you, is anyone touching you? And then you can say, oh, well, uncle so-and-so does, but I thought that was okay. I thought everyone does. And then that's our job to say, no, it's not okay. Or hopefully you would have had that conversation previously. So when it does happen, they can say, hey, uncle so-and-so, mommy say, don't touch me right there. Right. Right. Or afterwards they can say, "Um, mommy, uh, remember when you talked to me about this? Well, he did this and that was, you know, or check heaven forbid, right? Kids go away for sleepovers. They go away for a week. They come back and you don't ask any questions. You assume it went well. I don't care if that's my best friend's house you were at. How'd it How go? Did it go? <laughs> What'd you do? What did What'd you, you do? About, right. right? Yeah. You're checking in. But also, right, if you just see a kid, and this is not a story of abuse, right? This is a kid that um, walked in on his parents doing adult things. And the parent mm-hmm. panicked and said, oh, mommy and daddy were wrestling. And later, the next day when that kid was playing with his friends, he took off his clothes and was like, come on, let's wrestle. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Right? So that's a corrective conversation that needed to be had. But imagine it was an abusive situation. There are kids mm-hmm. who inappropriately go around taking off their clothes, touching people because that they've gone through something and they don't know that it's inappropriate. So those are things that you can look out for and just have a simple conversation. And oftentimes the caregivers will be the ones that are like, whoa, 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 this is what happened, right? And they've already often told that story. But if it's a secret that this kid was told to keep, those Mm -hmm. are the conversations that you're able to have through asking. Because otherwise, yeah, I got a secret I'm not telling anybody. But if you ask, yeah, then they're able to say, oh, okay, so what you giggling about? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. And if it's a cute secret or a fun secret, then great. But if you start to see that they go inward, right? If you start to look for that detachment, that withdrawal, those signs of anxiety, they can't sleep at night, they're not hungry, there's a change in their appetite, 
right? You're able to pick up on these things and observe these things. Ask targeted questions, observe more. Um, as a caregiver, go talk to the people that they were with. Little Johnny's doing some weird things, right? Yeah. Do you know why? And they might say, oh, oops, something happened, right? Mm -hmm. But that's a conversation that you need to be able to assess for or just be concerned as a caregiver about. Absolutely. Dr. Aisha? I, while we're here, I just want to ask how important is it for when parents are speaking of this issue, right, um, about the non-touching areas, how important is it for them to be, to call private parts by private parts? And I, I ask that because oftentimes, <laughs> you know, because of our own maybe discomfort yes yeah we, we give our we give names Nickname, you know like book. like our cookies <laughs> and things like that and i there was a story that i heard of um it was a case that i studied in school and a child was telling the teacher that her uncle was licking her cookie oh my and God. because it sounds very you know from a, a five-year-old, when you're talking about a cookie, it could be plausible. And it took the teacher a couple of um, a couple of times to realize what the child was actually telling her. And so could you just ex um, speak to the importance of when parents are talking to their children about the no-touch zone, how maybe it is important to utilize names as they are? I think it it varies developmentally. Yes. So it depends on the kind of developmental stages your kiddo, but if they can, so some kids might say vagina, right? Instead of vagina. But yeah, you can absolutely use the uh, anonymically correct term so that kiddos are able to communicate. But also, right, if they're using a cute term for it, you can use that term, but also give it the right word, right? Mm -hmm. um, and they can, it could be a learning point for the kiddo. But the main thing is good versus inappropriate, healthy versus not, harmful versus not, if it hurts. So using those sorts of words so that they can describe what it is that's happening as well as the body part. Um, so yes, it is important. And the messaging around the um, kind of healthy versus not healthy, good versus no not or yes versus no zones um i think are really important especially for the younger kiddos who you know private parts is appropriate for a kindergartner right they know that these are the the parts that your underwear is covering right that's those are the areas no one should be touching but yeah as you get as kiddos get older and you're starting to have even the birds and the bees conversations and yeah we do body scans we pull out a, an actual body and label the body parts and also with that how do you feel emotions in your body right so not only do you need to be able to label your parts but yeah what happens in your body when you're feeling certain ways do you clench your jaws does your heart beat really fast does your leg shake do you feel it in your belly but also what does sexual arousal feel like so having those conversations as developmentally appropriate is really important so that individuals aren't getting into unhealthy situations and not knowing how to either talk, negotiate, condom use is something that you have to be comfortable negotiating, right? And that's based on role-playing, modeling, and conversations that you're having with your caregivers that do help prevent from, in this case, I'm talking about condom use, sexual abuse, but also STDs, STIs, unintended pregnancies. These are all conversations that, um, or these are all outcomes that the conversation and appropriate labeling of body parts do help prevent. Yeah, and and so I'm, I'm about to go there. I'm just going to start with this. Um, you know, for me, I don't, and and my friends can attest um, when my when my nieces and nephews, by you know friendship, uh, you know, don't want to speak that day. You know, like I'll say, hey, and they, you know, they turn away or they, I don't force them. I think it's very important yeah. for them and to have a voice and for them to understand and for and for in my opinion I always tell my friends don't don't make them speak because you don't know why they're not speaking. 
I would personally say, why don't you want to speak to this person and not necessarily in front of the individual, like assess why that just happened. You know, if it, it might be moody, they might be being a brat, but it also might be something deeper. And so I want to give them an opportunity to know that they have a voice, that they have the right to say, I'm uncomfortable with talking to this individual and then for them to identify why they're uncomfortable. So I started doing this a while ago um, with um, my nieces and nephews. They, I would say, hey, hi, come here. And they say, no. And I said, okay, I don't mm -hmm. feel no way about it. I don't, mm -hmm. you know, whatever about it. And it's yeah. only because, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm thinking again, because everything that I do for the most part, when it comes to the young people, I'm reliving yeah. How I wanted somebody to assess me when I didn't want to speak to so-and-so back then, when I didn't want to go to so-and-so when they said, come here, and then they made you go. They said, no, go ahead and give uncle so-and-so a hug. I don't want to hug him. I can't tell you why, because he told me if I told you that he would hurt you. You understand what I'm saying? So not being able to have a voice, but using physical actions to let you know that this is me saying something's not right. Mm -hmm. So I, I want you to speak to that. Um, do you feel there's a different way to handle that? Um, is there a different thing I should have done? And then also to attach to that, yeah. uh, before Jackie goes into the next question, I want to deal with the cycle of abuse um, in, in the African-American culture and how we just throw it under the rug. Um, and, and, and it becomes numb to us. Yeah. So when it's addressed or when it comes up, we find out, oh, yeah, I was abused too. Oh yeah, he did that to me too. And I'm like, well, why didn't nobody keep me from uncle so-and-so? Why didn't anybody, why is he still in the house? Why is he still living with grandma? Like why are these things still okay? And so that's mm -hmm. what causes a child not to have a voice also because we protect our predators. We protect the people that offend our youth. And so the young people now feel like nobody cares about me because they allow this person to be this close in my proximity, just because we go to the same church, just because we go to the same cookout, just because we go to the same family union. So I want to deal with that as well, because let's get into the stuff. So, that so what I'll say about, and I love that you brought that up because mm -hmm. um, my professional identity is around interpersonal trauma and racial trauma. So I do focus on racial socialization, black childhood specifically and child rearing um, in childhood and adolescence. So I say that to say that with Black families, there is a, a, a kind of nuanced or bi-directional pulling around the way we socialize our kids that say, um, in the case of the example you just gave, on one hand, there's respect. When someone walks into the house, when there's an elder, you greet them. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, as it, as it pertains to abuse, there's consent, mm -hmm. right? Um, so one, there's no answer that's going to fit every family. Right. Um, so our job as clinicians is to talk to families about what their values are and they'll talk about respect. They'll talk about, yeah, okay. Consent. Maybe you'll come to an agreement that you don't have to hug everyone. You have full autonomy over your physical body, but in terms of respect, we're going to speak. Right. So we're going to speak and we're going to say hello. And I, as your caregiver, I am going to ask those questions like you just said, why don't you want to hug uncle so-and-so? Because that's a physical thing. Now, have there been physical interactions that have made you uncomfortable? Yeah. And if now you get sheepish and shy and no, I can't tell you because he's going to hurt you. Oh, well, how about this? We're going to talk about it because mm -hmm. mommy loves you and mommy's here to protect you. And I don't care what uncle so-and-so said. Right. And making your child see that the child is the focus and their safety is the focus. Right. Over and above these other two things that we're talking about in terms of respect and consent. Um, but respect and consent should be talked about prior to any abusive situation. Yeah. Right. In the, in the, in the case of the, the uncle, right. So this kiddo knows, right. I'm going to speak when I need to speak, but also I have autonomy and control over my physical body. So yeah, I don't need to hug them and you as well. Right. You, I certainly do the same thing. And my nephew is right upstairs and he does it all the time. Right. Like if you don't want to hug me, that's cool, baby, but good morning. Yeah. Right. Good morning. Right. <laughs> um, so I, I do think that, um, that's a delicate balance that we, we tend to try to walk. And it is just, again, a matter of, like you're saying, being thoughtful, being intentional, um, being attentive, 
paying attention to your kiddo, seeing like, what's wrong? What's different today? How are you feeling? What's going on? Checking on their feelings, checking on their experiences, but observe their behaviors. So I think as long as you get those three under wrap, then you and your kiddo or your kiddo within themselves and their kind of internal processing will be the most healthy. So as long as you're observing their behaviors, you're checking in on their feelings, and then you are checking those thoughts that are inaccurate because what we know is that those abusive situations do give us inaccurate thoughts in your case this person's gonna hurt someone if i say something or this is a secret that i need to keep or right it's some people might think it's my fault um all there are tons of thoughts right um that if you're not asking you're never gonna know And oftentimes it's those thoughts that lead to the dysfunction or the sense of of there not being any safety. Yeah, yeah. And then the cycle of um, molestation and abuse in the family and it not being addressed. What do you, what would you say about that as a whole? Because um, I'll be honest in saying, um, for me personally, I suggested that my whole family, um, my direct immediate family go to therapy together. Um, so that we can kind of talk out some of the things that we've experienced and we've discussed, you know, in corners, one-on-one, and then this one, one-on-one, and, but nobody's actually talked together about some of the things that we've experienced and how to avoid this happening and tripling, trickling over to the nieces and nephews and great nieces and nephews. How can we now get healed ourselves, right? Because we want to talk about treatment. How, do, how can we get healed ourselves? Um, from the trauma, because healing is a process. Uh, I might seem like, you know, I'm outspoken and, you know, I got a lot to say now, but I'm still being processed. I'm still allowing um, learning and education, right, to chisel away. And the more I learn, the more chiseled and, and, and more calm and more, you know, approachable I can become because I now understand the power that I have through my voice that, that was that was taken from me as a child. So the more I become aware of the truth and information, the more I feel at ease, at control in my own being and my own autonomy, right? As you stated. So how do we address, uh, what do you suggest for the family dynamic? Um, Because I have it greatly in my family uh, with abuse and molestation. How do we deal with that as a whole? Because everybody's in their own corners and nobody's coming together to try to fix this. What do we do? So, so what I'll say is that um, there's not one right answer. So I'm not going to be able to give that to you. Okay. Um, what I'll say is that there are multiple ways to go about it. Um, the one thing that doesn't work when everyone is in their individual corners is for them to be in their corners, not doing any work and just perpetuating the cycle. So that's mm-hmm. typically what happens. However, if individuals agree to do the work, then there are still two ways that they can do it. People can do it individually, right? Right. So we do child and family therapy. So you can say that you all are gonna be in your individual corners. That's when people, you see those family members who say, I'm gonna do it differently. I'm gonna break the chain. Break Mm -hmm. that chain, you can do that individually. Or, and you can do it collectively, like you're suggesting. Yeah. You all can go into family treatment. You all can do that work. But that requires everyone to want to do that work. Yeah. Well, otherwise, what happens is everyone's trying to do that work, but one or two or three people aren't doing that work, and it hinders the entire process. So even in child and family therapy, we have something that's called a clarification process. So if there's somebody who's either the offender, um, if there's somebody who is not yet on board, if there's somebody who has their own stuck points or maladaptive coping styles, they're a hindrance to the therapeutic process. And we know that needs to be removed and corrected. So what I'll say is that if you as a family have tried and tried and tried to do it individually, then try doing it as a unit. If you as a family have tried to do it as a unit, try doing it individually because there's not, there's nothing that says that either of those won't work. It's the intention behind it. And it's the process of actually doing the work that matters. And I do think that it's done either way, right? Because just as there is child and family therapy, there's individual counseling and there's family systems therapy. So you can do either depending on the functioning, the values um, and the history of your family. But like you're saying, in some cases of intergenerational trauma, Mm -hmm. 
it does require you to go and do that on your healing on your own to break that chain. Now you're starting a new branch on your family tree that's healthy. And then you can lead as an example. You can go back with those resources. You can use your voice as you're able. But what do we know about an airplane that's going down? You put that oxygen mask on yourself. You save your family. You save your individual household and then you branch out because otherwise there's all this drama, there's all this conflict, there's all this trauma that's perpetuating and getting worse and it's preventing you from doing your healing as well. So what you'll see when individuals are in individual therapy and they're trying to fix their entire family and lineage, it's hindering them, it's wearing them down. And oftentimes therapists are gonna say, listen, baby, um, maybe focus on your five, focus on your unit, I right? And just pass <laughs> on that information, pass yeah. on that love, bring them in when you're able. Listen. But otherwise it might um, not be the best course to try to correct as a whole, if everyone's not yet on board, if everyone doesn't have the same kind of resources and time, the same values, there's so many different factors that go into it. Um, however, this is coming from a child and family therapist. Talk to a family systems therapist and they're gonna say, right, do family system therapy, all you guys must be in the same room. But mm -hmm. I, I, I certainly think that, um, both things can be true and both strategies can work depending on the, the functioning of your family, um, how far back that intergenerational trauma goes, whether it's interpersonal or racial, whether it's individual trauma that's been intergeneration or if it's been collective, right? Um, so some families just have one black sheep, one bad seed, one, you know, one problem that they can pinpoint that now you guys can heal as a unit. But there are a bunch of different problems, a bunch of different issues, a bunch of different people. Maybe you do need to do that kind of individual healing, disseminate, lead as an example, and then come together. Yeah, that's Dr. Aisha, what are some other strategies, right? Right now in the conversation, we've identified, okay, we need to, to do some healing. We need, the healing process needs to start. Um, but what are some individual strategies, techniques that we can implement with our children, as well as, listen, I understand that you know trauma happens to children, but those children turn into adults with unhealed trauma. So what are some techniques to even just start the process? So for, and this is gonna be for children, for adolescents, this is gonna be for adults, this is gonna be for family units as well. Um, there are, I'm stop me whenever you want, but there are um, some core things that are necessary to start that healing process. So the first being just validating, normalizing, recognizing what it is, labeling what is happening trauma, abuse, neglect, uncle so-and-so, giving it a name, right? Labeling it, providing that psychoeducation around it. What is sexual abuse? Why is this inappropriate? What is physical abuse? What is corporal punishment? What is domestic violence? What is neglect? What is the result of that? So what is the problem, right? What is depression, anxiety, PTSD, emotional dysregulation? providing the validation, the education, the information, right? Until you know there's a problem, you can't fix it. So really facing that problem is the first thing. The second thing is being able to regulate your emotions. So if you're in a family meeting, and we're not even in therapy, you're trying to have a family meeting. You have 10 people in the room. The second one person says something that someone else disagrees with, there's a huge explosion. The entire meeting goes off the way. Someone's outside crying. Someone's doing this. Someone's that's dysregulation. That's to say that individuals aren't able to process, to calm down, to allow for things to flow and to then meet these conflicts, meet these traumas, meet these stressors in a way that allows you to heal from them as opposed to, to responding to them. So the second thing, after you know what's going on, you have to learn how to gain control over. And I say regulate. That just means, yes, this thing can be upsetting, but you have to be able to realize that it's upsetting, really why accept it but also calm down so that you can deal with it so that's the skill that we learn how do I recognize it how do I feel it in my body where am I feeling it in my body how do I calm down and how do I communicate that yeah in a way that's beneficial so we actually teach people how to communicate <laughs> 
Uh, we have acronyms, dear man, like how do you state the problem? How do you state what you want to get out of the problem? How do you listen and respond, right? So learning how to regulate your emotions and how to communicate is the second part. And then the third is what I already started talking about um, in terms of your thoughts, your feelings, and your behaviors. So recognizing how they all impact each other allows you to challenge that. So yes, it seems as if everyone in this room is against me and I'm being made to be the black sheep, but how can I challenge that thought even to, okay, maybe it's not all or nothing. Maybe they don't all hate me. Maybe there's something they disagree with, but they call this meeting for a reason. So how can I now come back to baseline to say, okay, we are working towards the same goal, at least. Let's continue this conversation. But people get stuck in that self-blame. They get stuck in that mind reading. I know what everyone here is thinking. That's a cognitive distortion. You don't know that everyone here thinks it's your fault and you're a terrible person. That's what you're telling yourself. Mm -hmm. So being able to identify those inaccurate thoughts, those negative behaviors, those harmful feelings, and challenging them. And that's to say, even if I'm angry, righteous anger, I talk to my clients about all the time. You have every right to be angry in this moment. How can you respond in a way that still gets you the outcome that you want and that everyone else seems to want? So being able to face that is another. Behavioral activation is really important. So getting up, moving your body, getting that energy out, we do know that we hold stressors in our body. So it's really important to take care of our bodies, exercise, walk go to the gym, watch a YouTube video as a family, move around in a way that allows you to get that folic acid moving around, but also that allows you to get some cortisol and some stress relief and to also, you know, build muscle that gives you longer life. We know that stress leads to hypertension and high blood pressure. Physically moving around is what allows you to regulate that as well. Also, myself, I don't really like working out, so it distracts, right? So if I'm trying to catch my breath, then I can't really think about, right, somebody who pissed me off earlier. I'm trying to stay alive and keep my heart beating right now. So just being physically active is something else that we're able to do. Um, having conversations with each other is a form of self-care. Rumination often leads to anxiety. So those are, um, I say rumination. Um, thinking about something over and over. So you have a conversation with someone and then three hours later, you're replaying what you could have, would have, should have said. Um, having those conversations with people talking is what also allows us to kind of break down some of those walls, deal with and process those stressors in a safe way. So don't go talk to the person who's going to argue with you. Find your safe space, <laughs> right? Talk to a friendly place that is curious, that's open, that's validating, but that also allows you to work through some of the stuck points or the cognitive distortions that you have. So someone who's going to challenge you. What makes you think that? Where'd you come to think that? What else might you tell yourself? I say that all the time. Don't talk to my friend like that. Don't talk about my friend like that. And they'll be talking about themselves. Don't do that. I don't like that. Right. So surrounding yourself with someone who reminds you of healthy ways to cope. Um, we know misery loves company. So don't find anyone else miserable if you're struggling, right? Mm -hmm. Find someone who's going to bring you to a brighter place. Oftentimes our teenage clients are going to say, right, I don't want to make them sad. I don't want to put my stress on them. I don't want to worry my mom, right? So that's to say, don't think of yourself as a burden. Challenge yourself to be brave with individuals who have proven themselves trustworthy and to love you so that they can help empower you to overcome, to face, to tell, to do whatever it is that you need to do to, um, to get past and heal from that stressor. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, the bulk of what we talked about tonight had a lot to do with direct um, abuse of direct trauma, um, you know, hands-on physical touch or abusive touch. There are, however, um, indirect, direct trauma situations. I mean, I don't know if I'm using the correct clinical term for it, um, but when I think about abandonment, um, when a child feels abandoned by a parent, when mm -hmm. a child feels um, like their parent is not seeing them. Mm -hmm. um, you talked earlier about, you know, I provide for you, I put food on your table, but there is no emotional connection. So a child feels abandoned in that area. The child feels like my mother doesn't love me. My father doesn't love me. All they do is do things for me, but there's no connection. Um, you know, I've had people say that, you know, you think, you know, I have everything because you see the things, but Ooh. that my parent is not there. They're yeah. never home. They're never 
present. So I, I want to end on that question because I don't want to hold you. Uh, how do we deal with that indirect but very direct trauma because trauma can be mental, emotional, you know, abuse to the child that they cannot really know, is it okay for me to say this because mommy's still providing for me? Is it okay for me to say, I need your time when they're working 40 hours? You know, it, what is okay? And how do I express that? Because I see a lot of children at this age and these teenagers committing suicide and yeah. wanting to harm mm -hmm. themselves because yeah. They don't feel loved. They don't feel they're joining gangs because they don't feel like a part of anything. They don't, you know what I mean? How do we deal with that type? Because that falls under abandonment to me, where they feel like they don't have anybody to identify or nobody loves them. So they look for love in other areas when they don't find it at home. Yeah, absolutely. So even when you think about social services, right, you can report, um, I say you can, we must, Jacqueline and myself at least, we must, as mandated reporters, we must report not only abuse, but also neglect, because we do know the detrimental impact of neglect. Um, so that is to say that absolutely um, vicarious trauma, which is what happens based on what you're observing around you, but also neglect, which is what happens because of a lack of nurturing, um, is very impactful for the developing child. Um, and what's really important in those instances, and I think that's a great question that you're leaving us on, is for any kid, if you are able to get them to understand that, very simply, two things can be true. It is a process that disrupts so much in their minds. It disrupts that black or white thinking, that all or nothing thinking. It disrupts a lot of self-blame that they have. And it also disrupts a lot of what you're describing as them loving, caring for, respecting, but also on the other hand, fearing, being angry at, being sad because of, feeling hopeless because of that neglect. So understanding that, yes, a caregiver can provide for you, can take care of you, can give you a place to live, but also, and two things being true, not pour into you and nurture you emotionally. Um, and in the case that there's actual physical abuse, you can also understand that this person taking care of you can also hurt you. Mm -hmm. And that just because they take care of you, it does not make them hurting you okay. Right. And I think once kids get that understanding that two things can be true, it trickles down into so much. So yes, I can love them and be angry. Yes, I, yes they can love me and hurt me. Mm -hmm. Yes, I can be hurt and heal. Mm. Yes, I can be angry and respond in a way that still allows me to reach my goals. Yes, I can anything negative and yes, I can be traumatized, abused, neglected. Yes, I can have had a horrible childhood experience and I can heal, I can grow, I can learn from, like you're saying, I can give back, I can help. That and is often so transformative in allowing us to accept negative experiences, but also in allowing us to heal from them, yeah. right? So understanding that, yes, I was neglected. Yes, I was abused. And there are things that I can teach myself. Mm -hmm. There are ways that I can learn how to regulate my emotions and calm down. There are goals that I can set for myself. There's a way for me to have a happy, healthy, attentive family communicative family and thrive and maybe even maybe lead as an example for the rest of my family. So I don't want people to get stuck on, I'm going to change my whole family because like you said, yeah. maybe this is 10 generations strong and it's the good part. You're going to start with you, baby. Yeah. Right. So accepting that 10 generations strong and you see, there's always an and Always Even with suicidality, end. right? People have the semicolon tattooed on their wrist. That's to say, it was a period, but I made it an end. There will be a continuation. 
I was abused, I was neglected, and I can do better in future generations. It can start with me. So I think that that is often transformative in the way that we think about what we've gone through, but also transformative in the way that we're able to heal and move forward. Mm. Um, so as much as you're able to just get that kind of duality, that dialectic, that and for people and families and kiddos in particular, because I think if you give it to a teenager boy, they take that all the way into adulthood. And that's not just, you know, romantic relationship, but that's negotiating a raise with my boss. It's that and. Okay, I know you said the company don't have money and look at all the good work I'm doing and the value that I bring. I'm still able to ask for that, right? These are signs of healthy development, of flexibility, cognitive flexibility of negotiation of healthy relationships because I understand that you're angry and that I hurt you in this way. And we have this common goal of communicating, of loving each other, of having a functioning household that allows us to still communicate in a healthy way. It's often that lack of the end that leaves people stuck in, everyone thinks this way about me or this is hopeless, nothing can change. There's an and that you can find. Um, and if we teach kids to find that and or that positive side of it, oftentimes we're, we're teaching them how to heal. That's extremely powerful because I'm just learning the power from just you saying that. And I didn't even realize that the title is trauma triggers and treatment. And so what you're saying wow. today is actually bringing everything full circle because I'm so used to using the but, which is dismissive to the trauma and the triggers, but the and says two things can be true at the same time. And mm -hmm. that is extremely powerful. I think I wanna, Jackie, do you have anything to add to that? Cause I think that is something that we need to just seal on. We need to pause on that and understand the power of the and and how transformative it is without dismissing what is also true. I think that that's extremely powerful. I'm, 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 I'm done. I'm like, <laughs> thank you, Dr. Aisha. Uh, Jackie, my co-host, do you have anything to add to that? Cause no, there's nothing just to <laughs> say thank you so much for just like giving us all of this amazing knowledge and, yeah. and information and, and oh, tangible so information that we can take and yeah. we can see how can we implement and utilize and, and, hopefully go home and get our own healing. Yeah. Yes. Amen. Thank you guys for the, Thank the you offer so to join you today. You are so bright and shining. The work that you're doing is so important. <laughs> it's hot so and right. You're and right. Shiny. <laughs> so I yes. really appreciate this conversation yes. and being Absolutely. able to, to spread this awareness to your audience as well. Thank you so much. So we are grateful to have Dr. Aisha here, Dr. Aisha Metzger. Please follow her on Instagram. Please, uh, you will see her website on her Instagram bio, in her Instagram bio. She is also um, over the Empower Lab. Dot gsu so please visit that as well if you want assistance and want consultation please visit her page and just get the information that you need we want to empower one another so that we can change a generation so thank you for being a part of this very important uh purpose in life um this very important dominion that god has created um, for such a time as this so people can know that they can be healed and you are part of God's plan and so I appreciate you doing the work. Um, please stay on for a moment Facebook. I appreciate you for joining. We are going to end the live. Thank you for joining White Table Talk. We will be back next week uh, mm -hmm. with uh, my sisters, my single sisters and some new relationships with um, realign, readjust and redefine how to move forward from a broken heart. So join us next week as we have that conversation and discussion. We love you guys. Always stay tuned to White Table Talk. Be blessed. I'm going to join next week. What? I need that. Yeah. Okay. So you guys have a fan. You guys have a new subscriber because I need that as well. Yeah. So let me see. Let me stop the recording. Um, we thank y'all so, so much for being a part of this important conversation. As always, thanks for tuning in to the Black and Empowered podcast. See you later.